Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Tennis Fanalist podcast. I'm Marcus Alley and I'm delighted to say that one of the fountains of knowledge, Mr. Michael Gillett, is joining me today. Um, how are you? Hello. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, um, I'm Michael Gillett, um, big tennis fan. Uh, I'm really excited to be joining Marcus on this podcast. Um, it should be really good fun. Yeah, a couple of uh, keen tennis fans you've got coming at you today and hopefully in a long series of podcasts that we hope to be putting together. Um, just moving on to the motivation of why I feel like we've we've decided to start start doing these. I mean, me and Michael's DMs has been filled with tennis, I think, for the last last three years, probably even more than that. We've bored a lot of friends in the pub just droning on about it, so I think it was about time that we actually got a microphone and started started putting a podcast together. What about you, Michael? Yeah, no, I, I, I relate to what you said about the pub when we start talking about tennis and we start getting eyes rolling around us with people who aren't so much interested. But yeah, um, that's essentially the reason why I want to do it as well. It's Tennis is something I really, really love um, and have a lot of time for. Um, and also, you know, we, you know, I'm a big sports fan. Um, we're, we're both big on sport. So, um, yeah, it's definitely the same reasons as you. Yeah, we're both um, uh, journalism students at, uh, at universities and coming towards the end of our courses now. Um, but without further ado, let's get into the podcast. So just getting into the first segment of today's podcast, and we're just going to talk about a couple of the recent news stories that have come out, obviously, with tennis in lockdown and the season, the season paused. Um, coming out a couple of days ago, Francis Tiafo, the American player, uh, tested positive for coronavirus. And the interesting thing about that is that he'd been playing in the All-American Team Cup in Georgia, out in the US. And uh, it was the first event in the US to allow fans to as- attend attend the, the game since the lockdown. That's, that's, um, that's from uh, BBC Sport. What, what do you make of that, Michael? Yeah, um, obviously we don't know all of the ins and the outs of of how Francis Tiafo um, contracted the virus, but um, you know that does suggest that potentially it could have come from from doing that. And it's very early to be having fans back at tennis. That's really the first case I've heard of that, other than obviously the Adria Tour, which we're we're going to talk about as well. Um, yeah, it, it feels very early to be doing things like this, um, especially considering we've still got the US Open to come, which is obviously going to be played behind closed doors. So I, I don't really understand why we're suddenly starting loads of tennis with fans, um, because we know there's just so much risk at the moment with with uh, the virus. Yeah, I completely agree, Michael. And obviously, as you just mentioned there, you hinted towards the Adria Tour and one of the more sort of depressing and negative uh, moments for tennis in recent years is definitely what happened out on the Adria Tour, led by Novak Djokovic and his role in the ATP Council Tennis. Tried to come back and too for long, too soon, it proved to be. Um, just for the listeners, do you want to outline that sort of case as events and how the disease yeah. really came about? Um, it was all a bit bizarre, really. Um, this started sort of possibly three or four weeks ago, and and you know when things were still really, really bad. And um, Novak Djokovic uh, started this tournament, which was held over two countries, Serbia and Croatia, I believe it was. And um, you had all sorts of players joining: Dom Team, uh, Zverev. Um, Andre Rublev, Grigor Dimitrov, and um, Dimitrov uh, got coronavirus first, um, and he had been at the tournament where there was no social distancing at all. There was ball boys being hugged. There was a kids' day where there was lots of contact with, with children, and there were fans everywhere, and it just was bizarre and I think it, it real shame for tennis as a sport I think that um that the top some of the top players in the world were, were seen doing this uh, and then Djokovic ended up getting COVID um I believe Troisky as well 
um, ended up getting it. Um, Yeah, it's just, and and Marin, I know Marin Chilich, I think was okay, but um, yeah, it's bizarre. And I think it's a shame, especially for someone like Djokovic, who's seen as such a big role model uh, in tennis and he's really uh, not given the sport a brilliant image there. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think the last name you're looking for, Borna Chorich, also uh, contracted the virus. But I mean, it, it's just a real bad look, sadly. And obviously, we as, as tennis fans just don't want to be seeing anything like that. There's been so much scrutiny looking back on how sport could possibly return in uh, things like this. And obviously, you're saying about the US Open being played behind closed doors and making it seem a bit strange that they're having fans back in countries like the USA. I mean, look to other sports like like football, which has been probably the most the most prominent in its return, and all of the measures that have come in that. I mean, you see players score goals and important goals for their teams as well, and they're just doing a little fist bump and jogging back to their places. It's um, a lot more responsible than a lot of the biggest names in the sport of tennis show show themselves to be on the Adria Tour. I think if you'd told me at the beginning of, of this pandemic and us talking about sport returning, if you told me that football players and, and were going to be generally more responsible than tennis players, I would have been quite surprised. But unfortunately, that's been the case. And and I think tennis has got to be a little bit ashamed of itself because there were some big players playing at that tournament. Um, yeah. Yeah, so moving away from the doom and gloom, that part is over with for now. We're going to get into the return of tennis. And obviously the US Open has been announced to be behind closed doors, as I've already said. And it's going to start on the 31st of August. What are your thoughts on the little rejig of the calendar there, Michael? Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, I, I, I believe, I might be wrong, but I believe the US Open hasn't moved at all. And I think um, that... It's, it's just stayed where it would have been. Um, but, yeah, I think it'll be interesting. I think out of the four Grand Slams, the US Open arguably has the best atmosphere on its courts. It, it uh, plays loud music. There's there's lots of, of noise. And so I think without the fans, it's going to be quite an interesting one. Um, it's the Grand Slam where most upsets tend to happen. And I think the the fans really do play a big part in that. So I think tennis at that level without fans is going to be interesting. I personally wouldn't have minded if it hadn't gone ahead at all. I'd say that with um, a heavy heart because obviously I'm desperate for major tennis to come back. But um, I think it could be interesting. I think I watched a lot of the Battle of the Brits, which we'll come to later, and and uh, after after a while, you you do kind of forget that it's behind closed doors, and you can get invested in it. So I'm I'm hoping the US Open will be will be good and successful. Yeah, I think it will be a success. I mean, I think from the viewers' sort of perspective, even though obviously we're watching a lot of sport behind closed doors, it's the the standard that you care more about than the atmosphere. It is you know, are you getting those great winners? Are the players still celebrating? just as much it'll be whether we can without the handshakes and without the G in the crowd up enjoy that that side of the game just as much as we we were used to for sure for sure and I think obviously bearing in mind what we have just spoken about it's going to be absolutely vital that the US Open get this right um because tennis as we've already said has had a lot to to be ashamed for at times and this is a massive tournament and there's a lot of pressure to get this right because if the same thing happens as what happened on the Adria Tour, if that happens at the US Open, there is many more players involved, there's many more nations involved and uh, it could be really, really damaging for tennis. So I think the organisers are really going to have a lot of pressure on them and they need to get this right and I really hope that the Adria Tour events in a way could even could be a blessing in disguise and actually could really stress to the players and the organisers how important this needs to be taken. Moving on to some action on the court. And of course, the Battle of the Brits took place towards the end of June. One of the most 
refreshing uh, forms of tennis that we've seen to come back from the break in the season, ending up due to injuries, having 10 British players to, to watch over on Amazon Prime, of course. Uh, Michael, you took in a lot of it. What were your, what were your initial thoughts on the competition itself? Um, I really enjoyed it, actually. I wasn't too sure at first. Um, obviously, coming into what we've already spoken about, tennis without fans, I wasn't massively convinced by it. But um, I did really enjoy it. It was, um, it was, it was actually eight players it, it started with. And then um, Jack Draper pulled out before the tournament started. And Jay Clark also got injured. So there were two replacements. But um, it was essentially the... It would have been the top eight Brits um, in tennis. And um, as I say, Jack Draper, the youngster, 18-year-old, pulled out, which was a real shame because I was really excited to see how he got on against the likes of uh, Dan Evans, Kyle Edmund and Andy Murray, of course, um, back on his return, which was really good to see. And he did very well. Yeah, I think we all as tennis fans are intrigued by Jack Draper. Having seen him get to that Wimbledon boys final a couple of years ago, he definitely is a, a name we want to keep an eye on from a, from a British point of view. One of my takes from Battle of the Brits was that it sort of fills a hole in the calendar, I feel. Um, sort of in England, people are sort of obsessed with tennis for about two weeks of the year when, when Wimbledon's on, and then it feels like there's just there's just nothing on in between then sometimes we have the odd Davis cup run and something like that. But I feel like a sort of feel good tournament. They've got the players on the mic during the game, uh, seeing the likes of Paul Jubb in the, in the tournament and just young players who are coming through. You can hopefully see what the future names are. I mean, there's been a lot put on Andy Murray. Obviously he's got a knighthood and stuff, but what, who's our next player after Andy Murray that's going to push for those slams. Anyway, Moving on to a bit more of your insight, Michael. What did you think was the best match that you saw at the tournament and who sort of surprised you? Um, best match of the tournament was, without a doubt, Dan Evans and Andy Murray's semi-final. Um, this is the top-ranked British player in Dan Evans uh, against probably the greatest British tennis player uh, of, of recent time, possibly of all time, um, Andy Murray. Uh, on his comeback, hadn't played uh, since November last year when he when he beat uh, Talon Greeksport at the Davis Cup Finals. So it was a, a real, real good thing to see Andy Murray return, and that match was brilliant. Um, and Murray actually won the first set against Dan Evans six uh, one, which was a real surprise because I'd watched all of nearly all of uh, Evans's matches before that and. He played some really good stuff and uh, I thought Evans was going to get past Murray a bit more comfortably, but Murray was really impressive. First set, he actually served, uh, I would go as far as saying Andy Murray was serving some of the best stuff I've actually seen him serve, uh, which is really impressive considering he's on his comeback. Um, Evans won the second set 6-3 and then with the slightly unique format that they're doing in the battle that they did at the Battle of the Brits. Uh, Evans won a super tiebreak, which is a tiebreak to 10 uh, instead of playing a third set. And Evans won that tiebreak 10-8. So it was a really close match. But I think although Murray lost the match, really encouraging for, for Murray, who went toe-to-toe with Evans, who is having a brilliant year. I think he's top, I think he's top 10 uh, for the race to London. Uh, which is the rankings from the beginning of the year. He's now 28th in the world, which is, I think it's either his career best or very near his career best. And um, I think really good for him uh, to get that win against Andy Murray. And uh, he went on to actually win the whole thing. He beat Kyle Edmund 6-3, 6-2 in the final. And uh, Kyle Edmund has had a good week, uh, but Evans really make quite light work of him in the final and um, really encouraging for, for Dan Evans. Looking at the rest of the draw, you see the likes of Paul Jubb and Ryan Penniston come in as uh, injury replacements. How do you think they, they fared against the bigger guns of British tennis? Uh, yeah, both of them did quite well, actually. Um, Paul Jubb uh, actually 
played against Penniston. Uh, that was Paul Jubb's first match. So Jake Clark had played against Dan Evans uh, on the first day, but then Clark uh, pulled out because of injury. And that also was a big game because uh, he's only 21 and, and is quite a promising young player. But um, Paul Jubb uh, played Penniston, who was Clark's replacement. And uh, he beat Penniston, uh, who is ranked... About nearly 150 places higher than Jubb. Jubb is only 20 and he's ranked 519th in the world. Penniston is ranked 394th and is a bit older at 24. Um, But yeah, Jubb got a super tiebreak win against Penniston, 10-6 in the super tiebreak. But then unfortunately for Jubb, uh, he was given pretty, pretty big hiding from Cameron Norrie. Uh, in the next match, he only won two games in the whole match. Um, so it was a disappointing second showing from Jubb. Uh, Norrie, though, of course, is a very good player himself. He is uh, 77th in the world, been top 100 player now for a little while, and, and I think definitely has potential to to push up into sort of a top, top 50, 40, I would say. Um, but yeah, and, and Penniston actually... Um, Although he didn't win a match, I don't think. Um, he actually took a set off Dan Evans in the group stage and he was one of only two players to do that. Only Andy Murray and Ryan Penniston took sets off of Dan Evans. So I think that's quite encouraging for someone like Ryan Penniston, ranked 394th, uh, to say that he was the only man to take a set off of Dan Evans uh apart from Andy Murray. So, uh, it's quite good for, for him. And would you like to see the tournament played again? Obviously not not in lockdown circumstances. Could you see it being replayed? Um, I, I would like to. Um, I don't know how likely it is. I think I heard recently, and I know this might annoy some listeners here, but uh, the 90s was a bit before mine and Marcus's time. And um, we actually did have a a British home tournament. Um, I think it was the UK Championships. And it ran until I think about the mid-1990s. And they stopped it because players like Tim Henman and Greg Rudeski um, were opting to play tour tournaments uh, in other countries. And they weren't turning up at the, the UK Championships so quite often you wouldn't actually get the best players in Britain playing. But I, I personally would really like to see this come back and top eight players in Britain. It, it would be really fun, I think, because it gives British fans, uh, as you say, who are only used to Wimbledon, it gives them a chance to see some of the other players that uh, Britain has to offer. Um, you know, At Wimbledon, we, we might get to see a, a name like Ryan Penniston, but it will mainly be just a first round draw. Um, you know, if he gets comes up against a seeded player, he'll probably get beaten quite comfortably and we don't really get to see a lot of him. But I think it's nice with the group stage format in the Battle of the Brits because we get to see these players uh, in a few matches. So those who, who don't know much about them, I mean, I learned a lot watching it. I, these were all names that I knew, but... I can't say I would have ever seen Ryan Penniston, Paul Jubb um, playing. And I haven't seen James Ward play in a long time. So it was, yeah, nice to see his name there. In this section of the pod, we want to look at the winners and losers of the coronavirus break in tennis. Obviously, an inconvenience for all involved. However, we're just thinking who who could it work out as maybe benefiting them in the future and who is getting rather unlucky. Um, so we're just going to go to and throw. We'll start off with the winners, Michael. Who who would you like to start, kick it off with? Um, I've gone for quite a few young players for my winners. Um, so I'm going to say someone like uh, Stefano Tsitsipas. Um, it's really hard to know because we don't know how their training is going. We don't know how they're doing. We, we literally do not know who's going to be be good when they come back. But 
I think for players like Stefanos Tsitsipas, um, Alexander Zverev, who haven't really had a, a look in at the Grand Slams yet, I think it really gives them a chance to have a break. Tsitsipas plays a lot of tennis. I think he's one of the most active players on the tour. Um, and, and someone like Dominic Team is very active as well. And it gives them a chance just to have a rest, um, but also really work hard and train. I, I question whether, you know, in, in this lockdown, I, I wonder if these sorts of players have more of a motivation to use the time to train really hard. Because obviously you players like Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, they've won, they've won all of the tournaments and, and they maybe don't have an as strong urge yeah, I think it would just be a really good chance for them to, to knuckle down and focus on on tennis. And I think one of the hardest things for young players coming up is there's so many more distractions now uh, with social media. And I think with what's been going on, it might have just given them a chance to kind of limit their distractions and just really focus. But it, it's so hard to know. I... I I don't know. It might be that we come back and players like Sitsipas um, haven't benefited from it. It's really hard to tell. I've gone down a similar route to you, Michael, really looking at a player that can, can hit that reset button and just try and um, come, back, come back in good form. Now, the first player I went for is Felix Auger Aliassim, 19-year-old Canadian. Uh, he's 20 in the in the rankings, I believe his, his career high is a tiny bit higher than that. Um, but the reason why I've picked him is I just think he's a player who, after having such a meteoric rise in, in 2019, just bursting up the top 100 in a, in a matter of weeks, uh, he, he was stuttering a little bit, I think, in, in 2020, rather than sort of being able to, to push on to that next level and push towards, towards the top 10. Um, similarly to, to how you said, I just think the break could give him time for the clarity on his shortcomings and he's still yet to win an ATP title having got to five finals so that is going to give a young player maybe a, a bit of scarring and a bit of bad experiences when getting into the last latter stages of of the men's tour um events um he also in those five finals he only won one set so that that's something that getting up for that event he's, he's clearly not been able to put in his, his best displays. Um, and also another sort of way of looking at it is the players above him. You look at the top 10, there are a lot of players in that top 10, top 15 that you think their best days have probably passed them. Um, they, they don't have a lot of a lot of time left. So uh, them having an extra sort of, what we're we looking at, about four or five months where they, where they can't produce their best tennis and keep the likes of Felix and other young players in, in the top 30 down uh, down there in the 20s to, to low 20s. Um, and he's also a player, yeah, that I just think could come back, come back fresher, come back in in much better form and um, look look to really push towards that top 10 um, towards towards the end of the year, putting some, some disappointment, um, some disappointment behind him in, in a slow 2020, I think, compared to 2019 for the Canadian. Yeah, and the next one I was going to say, and very much for similar reasons as our first two, uh, is Daniel Medvedev. Um, And another reason why I think him, as well as the ones that we've covered for the young players, is that um, he doesn't really benefit too much from the clay court season. Uh, I can't really remember him doing anything massively impressive on clay. I I might be wrong in that, but... um, He's also a winner in the sense that tournament like the US Open is still going ahead because he got to the final of the US Open last year, um, narrowly lost to Nadal, put out a really good performance. He's a very good hardcore player, uh, Medvedev, and I, I think he he I think his career high is I don't know if he's been number four. He might, but he's definitely been top five six and. Um, I don't think he's had the start of the year that he would have wanted, considering he had such a brilliant end last year. 
And I think if we're talking about winners in terms of this uh, situation, I would say Medvedev because he he isn't he still isn't missing his favourite tournament, which is probably the US Open. Um, whereas for those players who are very good on a clay court, they're obviously going to be missing out massively because their greatest Grand Slam. Well, it actually is going ahead. It's going ahead in September, um, but they missed it at the time that it normally is, and they've missed. Play, uh, play court tournaments like Monte Carlo and Rome. Yeah, I, co- I completely agree. Um, Medvedev would have a, yeah, a good chance to sort of fully focus on the US Open, which he came so close to winning, of course, in 2019. I've gone for Mr. Controversial Nick Kyrgios as a potential um, person to benefit from the uh, pause of the 2020 ATP Tour. Um, one of the reasons I've gone for that is I feel he's at a bit of a crossroads in his career. He's 25 years old. He's slumped down to 40 in the rankings. He has been there for some time, but obviously we all know that his his peak level is far, far better than that. Um, and I'm just thinking, will Kyrgios miss tennis? I mean, he doesn't seem to be enjoying it. He gets angry so much. He clearly loves a bit of basketball. He says he plays FIFA before before he, he plays tennis. Um, so it sounds like he has other passions. I also think he's probably such a big personality. He's probably huge on social media that the guy could actually be famous without tennis. The, the amount of crazy stuff he gets, he, um, he gets up to. And obviously he's a really good, really good entertainer on the, on the court and, and off it at times. Um, so yeah, I was just thinking it's a bit of a crossroads, excuse me, whether he comebacks Come, comes back fully committed. Um, is he going to be revitalised thinking, you know, I am going to try and uh, fulfil my potential. Can, it, can he come back and compete for slams, be fitter, be fitter than he's ever been before? Or will he just continue to be a sort of exhibition type player, still be an entertainer, but more like a, more extreme than a Gail Monfils, but more of a, a crowd pleaser and a serious tennis player that wants to, wants to fulfil their potential at all costs. So have you put Kyrgios as a winner there or a loser? Yeah, winner. Winner, okay. Yeah, I think I think Kyrgios is a very interesting one. I I must say he's not actually a name I thought much about when I was doing the winners and losers. And now you've said that, I can't decide in my head if he is a winner or a loser. I think, if anything, I'm actually going to disagree with you and say it might hinder him um, because I do think he is so distracted. And uh, I, I, I do wonder if maybe he hasn't used this time as well as he could, but t- time will tell. Um, I, I really hope he is a winner because I think, like most people, really enjoy watching Nick Kyrgios. You, you get the good, the bad, you get the ugly and, and the, the brilliant tennis. But I think, yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how it affects him. I really hope he, he can he can benefit from it because watching Kyrgios at his best is a really good thing for tennis. And watching him at his worst is is certainly not a good thing for tennis. Yeah, um, moving on to my third and final winner or person to, to benefit from the break if they if they utilize it well. Uh this guy's a, a bit more unknown. Um it's Spanish um, m- more of a clay court player, of course, which of course is even more controversial. Me saying him as a potential winner is Jaime Munar. Um, I'm saying this because I think the 23 year old has really, really dropped off, particularly in his ranking, but even his, his levels on the court in the last year. Um, in May 2019, he reached his career high of 52. Uh, coming up, coming up to May, he was 105 in the world. And I just think he's a, he's a player that showed a lot of promise when he first came out. He beat David Ferrer at, uh, at the French Open, I believe it was. And he sort of is in that mould, a sort of smaller guy with great running. Um, and he just showed a lot of potential. He's only 23 still. Um, he took part in the first next-gen finals in, in 2017. And so obviously went on to, to push the, the top 50 um, as, as I've said, so I just think he's another player that needed the break to sort of hit that reset button, refocus, and um, 
just look into what what helped him have that success earlier on in his career and what what he's lost since in his in his slide down the rankings. Um, so yeah, that's one of the angles I've taken is just how how the players are going to try and manipulate the break to their advantage and um, what players could potentially do that the best and how may Munar is is my last selection. Yeah, I think that's a good selection um, and, and good reasoning as well. Uh, he's a player that when he first came on, I noticed him as a youngster and, and was quite excited about him. But as you say, I think recently his name has just tailed a little bit behind the likes of of other young and up-and-coming players. So one in my head now is someone like Yannick Sinner, who's obviously, I think he's only about 18, 19. He's one that I would say I'm much more excited about now than, than someone like Moonar. Um, so yeah, I think that's a good point. It could be quite useful for someone like Moonar because he he hasn't been brilliant recently. And, and as we say, as you've said about others, pushing that reset button, I think that could be quite useful for him. Um, the third and final winner that I will say, uh, I've gone for Denis Shapovalov. Um, another fairly young player, I think about 20, 21, I think. Uh, yeah, another young player, 21 years old. Um, and he was having a not a brilliant start uh, to 2020. He lost in the first round of the only Grand Slam that's been played so far, which was the Australian Open, he lost in four sets to Martin Fuchsovics. Uh, I'm not sure if I say that 100% correctly. It's a good effort. Yeah, it's quite a hard uh, surname to play. And he's he's a very decent player in himself, but I think, you know, Shapovalov um, was a really promising, really promising youngster. And I think if you told us when he first came onto the scene a few years ago that at the age of 21, he'd be going out in the first round of the Australian Open to the world number 84. Uh, it's not brilliant, um, but Fuchs, he has got a decent record at the Australian Open. He's made the fourth round twice. Um, but yeah, I think Shapovalov um, has, like player, like you say with Munar, I think He's maybe tailed off a little bit uh, and maybe was hitting a bit of a ceiling, couldn't seem to get any higher than, than he is. I think he's 16 in the world at the moment. Um, but we, we can definitely see Shapovalov has bags of potential and um, can definitely cause cause some big upsets on his day. Um, so yeah, I, and he's also... Um, Actually, no, I won't say. Yeah, no, he. Um, I, I think Dennis Shapovalov is is a winner. Yeah, similarly, we've gone down the route of uh, looking at players that have sort of age on their side rather than uh, than against them. Um, so I'm just going to kick off the uh, players that we think the coronavirus lockdown came at a bad time for. And the first player I've got down for this is Christian Garin, the Chilean um, world number eighteen. Uh, it's a career high, which he um, which he was in when when tennis stopped. Um, really burst onto the scene like uh, Felix Auger, Aliasim, as we said uh, previously. Not in in such um, amazing fashion, really. But I just think he's a player who missed the clay court season. I mean, he's proved himself on a hard court and a grass court slightly, but nowhere near the levels that we see from him on a clay court. I mean, you, you could probably argue him into the top 10 in the world on a clay court, particularly on, in, uh, in three-set matches. Um, but yeah, of course, um, Darren, he's still quite young, 24, which is maybe entering his peak, probably got a few more years yet, but it's just an inconvenient time really to be, to be knocked out of his stride. Um, he won 10 matches in a row before the lockdown, before retiring um, in a loss to Thiago Saboff wild um, he, we won back-to-back clay titles, not week to week, but um, he won two titles in tournaments that he played in consecutively in in Cordoba and uh, Rio de Janeiro. I think from memory they were back-to-back weeks, two titles in two weeks, maybe not. No, those those eight days in between. So, okay, my bad, my yeah. bad. Um, so yeah, I mean, just a player that's going to miss that clay court swing or most of it, and I think got to that career high of eighteen. I think he really could have pushed on even more. 
if you kept being as ruthless with with winning those those titles on the tour. Yeah, you've you've made me a bit miffed actually because uh, Christian Garin is one that I've written down on my bit of paper. And I I thought I was thinking a little bit outside the box with that one, and I thought it would be quite a a good one. But uh, it's one that I said straight away. <laughs> Say again. Isn't this the one that I said straight away? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I've got the exact same reasons. I've, I've got missing the bulk of the clay court season. Obviously, he he's still got some clay court tournaments in uh, around February, March time before the suspension of the season came uh, in March. And yeah, back-to-back titles in Cordoba and Rio de Janeiro. Um, yeah, I think it comes at a really annoying time for him, even though... He has got time on his side uh, and, and he's still fairly young. Uh, I think it would have been really interesting to see him at the French this year, but then obviously the French is going ahead in September. So hopefully he's using it to his advantage, like we've been saying with the young ones and, and maybe we will see some good tennis from him at the French Open. Who have you got first up on your, on your losers list then, Michael, to combat? Of course, Christian Garin, who you also had, who I've nicked you, picked you to the post there with him. So this one uh, is a player we've already talked about, and it's Dan Evans, uh, the Brit. And although I think winning the Battle of the Brits would have been really good for him, it it was very good for his confidence, he'll be very pleased because he played brilliant tennis there. I think watching him play there made me realise how much of a loss, I think it is to Dan Evans. Um, he is 28 in the world at the moment. He's now 30 years old, so he's entering the final, perhaps, five or six years of his career, depending on how long he, he plays for. And he's been playing some fantastic tennis this year. As I said earlier, he's been um, top 10 in the race to London. Yes, yeah, so I think this has just come for a, a really inconvenient time, like we were saying with Garin. Uh, for Evans because he was really at the height of his game and he hasn't so much got time on his side now, 30 years old. You question maybe whether he can improve on on what he's doing now as he goes into his 30s because it, it is harder. But, you know, what have we seen with the big three? Hopefully Evans, for his sake, can still improve. Um but yeah, I think watching the Battle of the Brits just made me realise that it is a shame because Evans is playing fantastic tennis at the moment and it would have been brilliant if he could have played that tennis on the tournaments where ranking points were were included in and and then just climb the rankings. And I think he would have been really good to watch at Wimbledon this year. He's not got a bad record at Wimbledon. He's got to the third round twice. Last year he beat uh, the 18th seed in the second round, who was uh, Basil Ashby from uh, Georgia. And uh, he lost in five sets in the third round to ha- Hal Salzer. Uh, and he would have played Nadal in the fourth round. So I think um, it would have been really good to see him at Wimbledon this year because he he is playing the best tennis of his career. Yeah, um, you've done me on that one as well. I had Dan Evans written down. Um, yeah, similar reasoning to you. I was going to say he had that one-year ban in 2017, so he's running out of running out of time. That that contributed to that, you could say. And yeah, we've just definitely seen the the best tennis we have from Dan Evans this year. He's beaten the likes of Andre Rublev, Karen Hatchinov, David Goffin, and Alex Dimonor all this year. Really, players in that sort of uh, between 10 and 30 in the rankings looking to make that next step and Evans has proven that, that he, he can beat though, them on his day. Um, so yeah, just to finish off my uh, my selections for the losers from the coronavirus break and it's arguably the greatest player of all time, Roger Federer, at 38 years old. Um, he keeps proving me wrong, though I doubt him. Um, I have to go on record and say, sadly, I can't see him winning another slam obviously he came so close at Wimbledon last year I think he had match points on his on his serve uh, before Djokovic came back um, and obviously Wimbledon won't go ahead this year so that is his favourite Grand Slam possibly his favourite tournament ever that he's missing out on 
and at 38, surely nature is going to have to apply to this freak of nature at some point, you could say, uh, in Federer. You know, he can't he can't be competing for slams in his 40s, surely, eh? Yeah, I completely agree uh, with with that. And I, you know, it, it's a big, bold statement to make on our first podcast. We are setting ourselves <laughs> up to be laughed at big time when he goes and wins the US Open next month. But I do, I do question whether Roger Federer sitting at home um, with his family, does he have the motivation that's people like Dominic Team, who got so close to winning the Australian Open, Daniel Medvedev, who got so close to winning the US Open. These players have not won Grand Slams yet. And if they are not more motivated sitting at home than Roger Federer, then they should be. Because Federer is the, you know, arguably the greatest male player of all time. He's, he's won everything. And you, yeah, you do question at 38 years old when you're given this break, is Federer going to be out on the court as soon as he can, practicing every minute as soon as he can? And I, I, I'm not sure if he will be. I think Roger Federer possibly, quite possibly, just relaxed in lockdown and 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 was you know he's happy with where he is in his career. He's achieved so much, and I think I do question whether he would have the same motivation as some players. But I'm I'm prepared to be proved wrong. Yeah, is that okay. is that all the players you've got down? Um, no, I've got I've got a few more. Um, Go for it. Yeah, so I've got a few more players uh, who I think have lost. I'll go through them fairly quickly. But one player that I'll go through in a bit more detail uh, is Gal Monfils. I've written. Um, he was having a fantastic 2020. He's third in the rankings from the beginning of January. He's third in the race to London. Um, He's 33 years old, so he hasn't got time on his side. He won back-to-back titles in Montpellier and Rotterdam this year. And then the tournament after, uh, he lost in the semi-final to Djokovic and took him to three sets. I I think that tournament was in Dubai, but I'm not 100% sure. Don't quote me on that. Um, But he's been fantastic this year, Monfils, possibly playing the best tennis of his career. And... You know, he's 33 years old. Um, and I think this has come at a really annoying time for him. He he joined with uh, coach Liam Smith, uh, not to be confused with Leon Smith, who was the British Davis Cup captain. But uh, their, their partnership together has been going really well. And I, I think Monfils just, yeah, it's just come at a bad time for him because like with players like Federer, you know, has Monfils got the the motivation to be out on the court straight away and practicing when when he's at thirty three years old and he's done a lot already? But uh, you know he he was quoted after winning one of those titles. I can't remember if it was either Montpellier or Rotterdam, but he, he was quoted saying that he still he still believes that he could win a Grand Slam. And you know that's a bit that's a big statement. I, I'm not one hundred percent sure if Gael Monfils will win a Grand Slam. But this this has to be a hindrance for him. I completely agree. And um, I think the resurgence of Gael Monfils, these last couple of years for me since I've been following tennis have been the first where he's really been able to prove his his fitness on a, on a consistent basis. Um, so, yeah, this particularly 2019 and the start of 2020, the... Yeah, the quality of Gael Monfils' tennis has been has been mind blown, and the consistency of that he's just been able to to, to sustain that level, which we, we didn't see in in so many years before. Yeah, we we really didn't see that level of consistency from Monfils, like you say. Um, but yeah, he's been really good this year. The the other players that I've written down for losers, I'll sort of group them together. I've got Sam Querrey, John Isner and Kevin Anderson and I've grouped them all together because they're three players that love Wimbledon and obviously Wimbledon isn't going ahead this year. Um, Querrey has beaten Djokovic at Wimbledon, Kevin Anderson obviously a a former finalist uh, at Wimbledon. 
you know, that these players all love the grass court play and they all haven't got time on their side. They're all in their 30s now, coming towards the ends of their career. And I think it, it would be a real shame for them because, you know, then their next chance to do well at Wimbledon, which they've always got a chance of doing, but uh, their next chance now isn't going to come for another year. And at the ages they're at, a year is a long time. And um, yeah, I think those three have definitely missed out with Wimbledon not being on. For the penultimate segment of the pod today, um, both myself and Michael are going to profile a player that we think you could be seeing a lot of in the future, who, who an up-and-coming uh, player who, who yeah, we, we really rate and um, we think is maybe maybe going under the radar a little. Do you want to do you want to get this started, one, Michael? So I've gone for Brazilian player, not the easiest name to say. Uh, Tiago Saboff Wild. Um, he's only 20 years old. He's ranked just outside the top 100 at 114th uh, in the world. But I think he is one that we should account for coming up uh, as as we progress, as the seasons continue. Um, he won a title earlier this year. Uh, he won the title in Santiago. And uh, he beat, on on the way, he's beat five real clay court specialists in Bagnis, Londero, Garin, who we've already spoken about, Olivo and Kasparud of Norway. Um, and he was only 19 when he won that. He's, he's aged um, another year since then. Um, but I think he, he's definitely one that we should uh, watch out for. He's coached by... How Zvech, I'm not sure if I say the surname exactly correctly, but um, he's a Brazilian coach who formerly has coached uh, Thomas Bellucci and Flero Serreta, who are both players who have been inside the top 50. Um, so I think that's promising. He's got an experienced uh, coach on his side. Um, he was the US Open Juniors champion in 2018 and uh, also got to the semi-final of the French Open uh, juniors. And I think the fact that he won the US Open juniors really shows that he's not just capable on a, hard, uh, on, on a clay court, because quite often with players from South America, uh, a lot of the players we have now with the likes of Bagnis, Londero, uh, who I've just mentioned, they're very much players who are very proven on clay, but we don't really see too much of them off of clay. Um, so the fact that Sable Foyle has won the US Open juniors really shows that he knows how to play on a, on a hard court. And, um, you know, it'll be interesting to watch him uh, on a hard court when, when tennis comes back. And I think, um, yeah, the title in Santiago was a massive surprise. Um, he, he'd only won one professional tour match before that so he must he, he must have risen very highly in the rankings and yeah he, he he could be one to really watch out for that people maybe haven't heard of so that's Thiago Saboff Wild. Yeah that's really good I mean I enjoyed watching him win that, that uh, Santiago title. Um, the player that I'm getting really excited about and who I really enjoyed watching as he's progressed through the Challenger Tour and onto the main tour now recently, mainly in 2020. And that's Mikel Emer. Um, he's 21 years old. He's 68 in the rankings. Uh, he's from Sweden as well, which is interesting. I mean, they haven't had a top player in a while. I think Robin Sodling's the only name that springs to mind. When, well, Bjorn Borg, obviously, but we, that was a bit before our time. Uh, but Sodling's the main name that springs to mind about Swedish tennis. Um, so yeah, I believe he's the, the Swedish number one at the moment. But yeah, it's just his style to watch. I mean, he puts everything into it. Really, really athletic player. Um, did well in the Australian Open. Was very unlucky to lose out in the second round to Karen Hatchinov in a fifth set tiebreak, to which he did have match points. So a little, little guilt edged there. Um, yeah, it was it was a really good game as a spectacle. And uh, no, yeah, Imer is definitely one to watch. He broke into the top 100 
after winning lots of challenges uh, towards the back end of 2019, as I've mentioned. And um, yeah, just really hit the ground running in 2020 to me, reaching that ranking of 68. Um, and yeah, he's got an older brother called Elias, who isn't quite as good. He's now dropped to 201 in the world, but did previously push the top 100 um, ahead of his brother. Um, but no, I definitely think this guy could be a, a top, top player. And yeah, Sweden have found their next man in Mikhail Imer. That's got to hurt a little bit for Elias to be the older brother and leading the Imer charge into the top 100 so quickly just to be overtaken by his, his younger brother. But no, I completely agree on that. Um, and I have to give it to you when you say it's someone you've you've watched for a long time. I know for a fact that you were mentioning the name Mikhail Yamer to me quite a while back. I think possibly back to when he was about 17. I know it's a player that you've followed for quite a while. Um, and he's certainly backing up the promise, I think, at the moment. I um, That result against Hachinov has actually escaped me. But now you said that, I, I remember that. And yeah, he, he really does show a lot of promise. So hopefully, as we've talked about with, with the winners and losers earlier, hopefully someone like uh, Mikhail Yamer is, is really naming down and, and getting ready for the return. Yeah, I wouldn't worry about his brother so much, knowing Elias Yamer personally as I do. I know he's not the jealous type. And uh, he'll just be patting his brother on the back on, on all of his successes, I'm sure. So the final segment of the podcast is going to be a bit of trivia. Uh, me and Michael are going to take it in turns. We've both written five clues about a player. Um, hopefully we won't need them all. And we're just going to have to guess uh, which player the other one is is describing. Michael, I'm going to, I'm going to describe a player first for you. And uh, yeah, just... Just shout out, shout out the answer and as soon as it comes to you, have as many guesses as you want. Um, right, so... Feeling the pressure already. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's not... I haven't, I haven't made it easy for you. The first clue is he's 36 years old and he reached the Australian Open third round this year. 36? Okay, so someone is been around for a little while third round at the Australian Open hmm go for Misha Zverev incorrect okay the second clue this is yeah quite a small clue he's left handed (laughs) great (laughs) um I'm really stumbling, actually. Um, 36 years old. That's thrown me. I'm trying to think. There's there's not many players that age that are, that are still making third round of Grand Slams. Um, Move on, next clue. I, I don't think I don't think he's uh, actually. Yeah, I'm not going to say this because I know it's wrong. So go on, next next. Clue. Okay. Uh, third clue. His his best at Wimbledon is making the quarter final in two thousand and thirteen. Two thousand and thirteen. Okay. Um, so just to run back through the cues, you got a thirty six year old who reached the third round of the Australian Open this year. He's left handed, and his best ever performance at Wimbledon is making the quarter finals in twenty thirteen. Oh, I don't think I'm not sure if he's left handed, but is it Andres Seppi? Incorrect. No. Okay. All right, fourth clue. I'm not giving you more than one guess per clue. Sorry, mate. Uh, (laughs) Career high is eight in the rankings in November 2013. So he potentially played at the ATP World Tour Finals if he got to eight. Depends if he ended the year on eight. It was in November 2013. Yeah, okay, so he, I'm assuming he played at the ATP Tour Finals. Um, I might throw in a little bonus clue. He has won the ATP World Tour Finals, but on the doubles court. Oh, 
Oh Gott. Ähm. Oh, my doubles is so bad. Ähm. Oh, I'm kicking myself now. He's. Oh. I'm completely stalled. I'm going to kick myself. You got one clue left. I don't want it yet. I don't want it yet. Um. No, I'm, I'm started. Gone. Last clue. Last clue. He's born in Madrid. Okay, so Spanish. 36-year-old reached the Australian Open third round this year. Left-handed, Wimbledon best of the quarterfinal oh. 2013. Career high of eight in November 2013. The bonus clue is won the ATP World Tour Finals on the doubles court and he's born in Madrid. I've got a Spaniard in my head who is probably about 36, but I'm surprised that he won a doubles title, so I, I'm cautious about saying it. Uh, I'm trying to think of other older Spanish players. I think Rafael Nadal has been higher than eighth in the world. <laughs> Just a little bit. Um, yeah, I'll go for it. Is it Fernando Vadasco? On the buzzer, you've got it correct. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know he'd won. I didn't know he'd won a doubles. I wasn't sure that he was much. Yeah, I think he's played it for Spain in Davis Cup finals as well. Um, okay, so that's the answer. Did he win it? Well you? No, no idea. Okay, interesting. Cool. That that was a good one. Um, I feel like the thirty-six and getting to the third round of a Grand Slam at the beginning of the year I think that should have I should have got it sooner because Fernando Vadasco is a very impressive athlete he's 36 years old and he's been he's been going for quite a long time now so I, I think I should have got that earlier but a good one to start and um, we'll move on to uh, my one now uh, so the first clue uh, they were born in Israel but they actually compete for a country on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. Okay. A geography in there for you as well. Okay. Um, I mean, that's a toughie. Um, Doody Seller instantly popped into my head, but obviously he doesn't represent Canada or USA or someone the other side of the Atlantic or even South American. Uh... I'll just take a guess. Riley Opelka. No, not correct. Uh, The second clue. Despite making one Masters final, this player has never been past the fourth round of a Grand Slam. So never past the fourth round of a Slam, but has made the final of a Masters once. So that definitely narrows it down a bit. Okay. Is it Jack Sock? It is not Jack Sock, but good guess. Uh, clue number three. I am coached by former number world number eight, Mikhail Utsny. Oh. So this is coached by Mikhail Utsny, who only retired, I believe, maybe four or five years ago, I'm going to say. Oh, I know this. Is it Milos Reinich? It is not Milos Reinich. We're uh, hearing that Yusni had gone into coaching with a, a decent player. So, clue number four uh, might give it away a little bit. I reckon you'll get it on this one. I'm only 21 years old. So, it's, it's a young player. Yep. There was a little bit more to that clue, but I'm not going to say it yet because that definitely gives it away. 21 years old. Um, is it Denis Shapovalov? Yes, Shapovalov uh, is the the player. I thought I might trick you by giving you a player who we've already talked about because I thought you might assume that it's a player that we haven't already included. Yeah, I didn't um, know he was born in Israel. Must have yeah. Israel. yeah, I was surprised. Well, I, I, I chose Denis Shapovalov and I was looking up things about him and uh, I was surprised to read that he was born in Israel. Um, so you went for the little double bluff a player that I should think is obvious but wouldn't wouldn't dare to guess because I didn't think you would have 
you would have put him? Yeah, my last clue was um, I won the 2016 Junior Wimbledon and I'm currently ranked 16th. And I think you probably would have got it on the Junior Wimbledon because you might remember him winning it and ranked 16th narrows it down quite a bit. Um, And I think I've already said in this podcast that Shapovalo was ranked 16th. So, yeah, well done. Thanks for listening. That's been the first episode of the Tennis Fanalist podcast. We'll be back next week with more. Thanks for listening.